This is In Tune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera that speaks, theater that sings, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of In-Series, and this is an Inside the Closet episode of In Tune, as I broadcast this episode from my bedroom closet, seeking to find enough quiet in order to make a recording. Every time that I... Um, I come into the closet to make a podcast, which I've done several times this week already, working from home. I think of one of my favorite episodes of the NPR uh, show, This American Life, in which I host Ira Glass is taping a live uh, performance uh, from the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and that means they're recording in the Brooklyn Opera House. And because it's an opera house, they choose to interview two opera singers who are married to each other, a baritone and a soprano, and that couple relates a story in which they had gone out of town for uh, an audition tour. Uh, the baritone has gone out of the hotel for the day to go take an audition. The soprano uses this as an opportunity to uh, record some voiceover work, which is how they make a living because that's what the opera singers do on the side to, 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 to be able to, to support themselves. And uh, she closes herself into the hotel closet. The door locks behind her and she can't get out. And she's in the closet all day, um, knocking on the door, trying to communicate to the, the cleaning lady outside that she's in there. Finally, a group of people check into the room next door and here, and it's a whole fiasco getting her out of the closet. And then Ira Glass surprises them by having his cousin, who, if you don't know, is another Baltimore native named Philip Glass, the minimalist composer. Uh, and Philip comes out and improvises, or composes rather, a... Uh, new opera based on these two sopranos uh, or two singers and the soprano locked in the closet. And that's what I think of as I close the closet doors behind me each day to record a new in-series podcast and this time as well for this episode of In Tune. You know, in these days of social distancing and working remotely, our in-series offices are closed, as is the entirety of the Source Building and the Source Theater. I find that I'm strangely busier than normal, and actually that there's a real comfort in choosing to look at the current crisis as a challenge to do better work, to respond with more thought and more intention, and in more meaningful, deeper ways. One of these has been reaching out personally to our artists and donors one by one to check in with them, to let them know how grateful we are for their support. Uh, also to let them now know how okay we are for the present and telling them about the creative, innovative, new ways we're, we're trying to come up with so that they can stay connected to us as an organization and we can stay connected to them as part of our community and our family. Last night, I received this recording that you're hearing now which is by one of our in-series artists, mezzo-soprano Elizabeth Mondragon, as she reached out to me to ask how I was doing. I was surprised and suddenly aware that I hadn't actually stopped to consider how I'm doing, which is fine, by the way. In this recording, she's singing one of the most beloved arias of Handel, La Chiquipianga, which comes from his early opera, Rinaldo. 
It's quite a coincidence because last week I was talking on this very podcast about epics and mentioned in particular the epic by Ariosto Orlando Furioso. And in the context of Handel, I mentioned it because it was the inspiration for a number of his magic operas. I put that in quotes, specifically the operas Orlando, Alcina, and Ariadante. Ironically, none of these magic operas actually contain any magic that works, though they do contain sorceresses and the likes, and that's part of what makes them so amazing. But this early opera, Rinaldo, contains a lot of magic, uh, and it is based on another Italian epic from the same period as, as Ariosto called Gerusalemme Liberata by Tasso, which wasn't the source for many uh, uh, 18th century operas, but was the source for a lot of earlier works by uh, Monteverdi and his magical writing colleagues. The text for this aria is particularly powerful. It says, Let me weep over my cruel fate and sigh for my lost freedom. May the pain shatter the chains of my torments just out of mercy. And then it repeats the beginning because this is a da capo aria. Let me weep over my cruel fate and sigh for my lost freedom. Handel, when he got to London, wanted to show off that he was a virtuosic musician, composer, and also uh, instrumentalist. And into this opera, he even inserted an aria with an eight-minute obbligato for the harpsichord so he could show off his prowess. But he actually stole this aria from an earlier work he'd written in Italy called The Triumph of Time. Uh, and the original text is uh, Lascia la Spina, uh, to this aria, and, and it has a slightly different translation. Leave the thorn, take the rose, you go searching for your pain. Gray frost by hidden hand will come when your heart doesn't expect it. Uh, beautiful words for beautiful music, and I want to very much thank Elizabeth Mondragon for, for sending this to me, for thinking of, of me during this time, and um, for sharing this with, 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 with us including you, our in-series family. Now, how have I been passing the time? Well, I think I said last week I was going to embark upon reading the Decameron. Um, I decided I would try to read 10 stories a week, which is 10 stories every seven days, uh, 10 stories in 10 weeks, as the Decameron is 100 stories. Um, I've managed to do that. Uh, if you're looking for some funny and uh, quick little momentary uh, morsels, I would encourage you to, to do the same. Each story is maybe, uh, maybe three, four pages. Um, so far in the first 10, they've all been about very naughty uh, nuns or priests finding, finding uh, quirky and quixotic ways out of their difficulties. There's also a lot of stories uh, turning Jewish stereotypes of the time on their head, and um, uh, it's really quite a witty and fun work. Uh, also in the process of this, uh, one of our one of our other in-series uh, singers, Byron Jones, suggested that I look at a film called The Little Hours, which is based on stories one and two from the third day of the Decameron. It's with Aub Aubrey Plaza, uh, John C. Riley. Paul uh, Reiser, 
an amazing cast, a really funny movie. It's available on Netflix, and, and I'd suggest checking it out. I've also been, though I'm about to fail, I can tell, trying to read a Shakespeare play a day in the order that they were written, um, which means I started this week reading The Two Gentlemen of Verona, uh, which is youthful, yes, but very funny, very intelligent. Um, and then, of course, The Taming of the Shrew. Now, I had decided that I uh, would always, the evening before, read Marjorie Garber's uh, chapter from her book, um, Shakespeare After All, which has one chapter on each play. Uh, I'd read that the night before to try and prepare myself, and that the next day, sometimes I'd read the play, sometimes I would find a film of a stage performance, sometimes I would find an audio reading of it, sometimes I'd find a movie version. So uh, the second day was The Taming of the Shrew, and I went back to the Richard Burton, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Franco Zeffirelli film, which is, um, well, very entertaining, very beautifully done, very of its time. Taming of the Shrew is, of course, problematic um, with issues of misogyny uh, and gender equity, and the film does nothing to, uh, to help deal with this. Um, so one has to, to look with a critical eye and also understand the time it was written in Marjorie Garber makes a beautiful comment that she very much approves of productions where they try to reinterpret Kate's final speech where she says women should be obedient to their husbands and the husbands are the son to, to them, um, as somehow ironic and wink wink nudge nudge but we should also admit that Shakespeare didn't have the same views as us didn't live in the same time and we shouldn't ascribe to him a sort of perfection model that we tend to do and probably he did mean the play to be as uh, genderly inequitable I shall say as it is um, and the following day uh, was Titus Andronicus um, which again, um, I went to a film version, the Julie Tamar film from the 90s. Julie Tamar, uh, of course, is most famous to, to, to people for doing the, produ the stage production of The Lion King, but of course she was, is a great theater director and specializes in uh, other theater traditions beyond the Western tradition, particularly Asian traditions. I think the first thing I know of her is a staging that she did with uh, with Seiji Ozawa conducting, I believe, in Tokyo of a sort of Japanese version of Stravinsky's opera of Oedipus Rex with Jesse Norman, um, a lot of use of puppets, an amazing opening scene where a kabuki or maybe a no artist comes out and slices the opening curtain with a, with a sword and a, a puppet but giant eagle flies out over the audience, uh, or maybe it's a vulture. Um, really, really splendid. Um, she went on to do a lot of opera. She did a new version of Grendel for the uh, L.A. Opera, and of course the Met's Magic Flute, Like It or Not, is also her production with marvelous puppets. Um, and this film of Titus Andronicus is, is also, I would say, a masterpiece with Jennifer uh, Jessica Lange and Anthony Hopkins. Um, it is dark. It is violent. Um, Shakespeare's writing in a tradition of uh, revenge dramas like The Spanish Tragedy by Kit or The Jew of Malta uh, by Marlowe, and this play does not disappoint if you are in the mood for vengeance and uh, ghoulish horror. Um, it's also beautiful 
poetry and a powerful uh, example of Shakespeare learning how to write a tragic hero who would later become the likes of King Lear, and there are a lot of similarities there. And then I've been spending my time doing a new podcast. I hope some of you have been able to tune into this. This is a intro to opera. Each day I've been introducing the Metropolitan Opera streaming broadcast that they will present that night. So the first one was Monday with Tristan und Isolde. Last night they presented uh, Das Rheingold. Tonight they will present Die Valkyrie, and I will be doing a, an intro of sorts to, to those operas. And then, of course, I've been spending my evenings watching Wagner, which is, um, you know, a rare treat, not something that I get to do most of the time because there isn't the time most of the time, but in these times there's lots of time. Uh, and I also um, spend a lot of time thinking about how best to react to what is before us. Um, its magnitude is clear, if still immeasurable, and probably will remain immeasurable, um, but it will undoubtedly leave us different than we were before, even if we can't see how that might be. There was a very uh, interesting thoughtful, balanced article on Politico.com, which was actually a series of, of uh, offerings from their various commentators uh, about how they imagine our society might be different on the other side of this in different areas. So um, the general takeaway for me was that uh, we will be a people more comfortable with and more um, reliant, but with a sense of our own control of it, on technology. But we will use that technology with more um, balance, more wisdom, um, and more thought. Um, there also seems to be a sense that we will be uh, brought together. Uh, we will be a more unified community, but we will be a unified community that is comfortable with solitude. Uh, we won't be a people that are so afraid to be quiet and to be in stillness uh, and that we may be a more patient people. Uh, and then a, a major takeaway for me was that we uh, may become a people that are not necessarily obsessed with individuality, that we may become more bound together by this Individualism, of course, is wonderful, and it is one of the things we inherit from the Renaissance and from humanism, but it, it can go to extremes, and especially working in the arts now, uh, when we suffer because we, we find audiences don't even want to come in, in large groups to experience a single thing. They want an individual experience, um, and that is something that live theater isn't made to offer. Live theater was, of course, invented by the Greeks as a way to bring people together to have a common shared experience and to have a conversation that would otherwise be difficult, but that requires coming together. Um, now, in parentheses, I'll say coming together uh, in life or in virtual uh, form, but still it requires a coming together. It is not an individual experience like uh, like sitting under the covers and watching Netflix as wonderful as that is. 
Um, and there's another side to this, of course, which is that we will walk through this. We will emerge on the other side. Uh, lonelier, yes, for sure. We will have lost friends and family and also a sense of security and safety, more aware of fragility, um, but also closer to each other because we will have done it uh, regardless. Together, there's a beautiful line that closes Toni Morrison's acceptance of the Nobel Prize in which she, she's told a story of children who come to an old woman and challenge that old blind woman to tell them what it is they hold in their hands. If it is a dead bird or it is a bird, is it dead or alive? And they have a conversation about the cruelty of this trick, but also the power of language and who controls language and who has an obligation to uh, to use language to make the world a better place. And it ends with the children saying, look at this thing that we have done together. Um, and no matter what happens, we as a capital W, we will emerge from this um, with a stronger sense of unity. I'm going to return now to where we started, which is an aria of Handel's. Um, and maybe that's a way to structure these in-the-closet, in-tune episodes, a different composer uh, as a starting place for thought and conversation each week. Um, this week, inadvertently, it became Handel. Uh, we began with uh, an aria from one of his magic operas, the early opera, Rinaldo, um, asking to be let to mourn, to cry, to weep for one's fate. Uh, but we'll end in a very different place, which is an aria from a late opera, also a magic opera, but based on uh, Orlando Furioso, in which there is no magic, there is even no magical character. This is Aria Dante. Um, this is an opera that's very important to me because when I decided I wanted to be an opera director, um, the local director, wonderful director Garnet Bruce, uh, told me, he was the first director I assisted for, and he told me, of a production he had assisted for at Houston Grand Opera of Handel's Ariadante, Greek to me at the time, um, uh, that was based on an e that was an ENO production by David Alden. David Alden is one of the great American directors who just did the uh, the uh, Othello at at the WNO this year, um, and this is a production of his that's very famous from the English National Opera. And I went out and bought a. Uh, DVD of this fantastic, imaginative, musical, incredible production uh, with Anne Murray in the title role. And I also bought a recording, um, and it's the recording that I'm going to play now, which is um, Les Musiciens de Louvre uh, with Anne-Sophie von Otter, the Swedish mezzo-soprano. There are many wonderful recordings of this aria, uh, but for me, Anne-Sophie von Otter is the absolute pinnacle of perfection in this role. This is the aria Dopo Notte, which means after night. And it is uh, an aria that is important for me for a number of reasons. Um, and one is that when I uh, took the job at InSeries, I was at a point in my life and my professional career where I had been looking for a chance to come back to America desperately to this this land I hadn't lived in for 15 years, but where um, 
where I felt called to be and and where and that I loved very much and uh, getting the job at InSeries was very much like um, seeing a, a bit of sunlight through the clouds after a very long night. And in that period when I was still living in London, another city that, that I adore and I miss very much, uh, but I would uh, go to the museum or to the store or to the theater with my earbuds in, listening over and over and over again to this aria, Dopo Notte, uh, from the third act of Handel's Aria Dante. And the text of this aria is, After a night so bleak and foreboding, the sun shines forth in the heavens, all the dearer as the earth fills with joy. For in the midst of a horrid storm, my boat has been almost submerged, but it grasps at the store as it returns to port. And because it's a da capo aria, after a night so bleak and foreboding, the sun shines forth in the heavens, all the dearer as the earth fills with joy. Uh, and while I think there is a, a time and a place, and it's very important to have, have moments like Lascia Kiopianga, let me weep, it's also moments to remember that the storm will pass. There is the end tonight, the sun also rises, and there is Dopo Notte. Thank <laughs> you. 
there's any way to express the sentiment of the sun also rises better than than that aria my friends i i always end uh by reading uh or, or paraphrasing a quote by the indian poet and scholar and spiritual leader and faith leader Rabindranath Tagore, um who was the the first uh uh, I, I believe the first non-Western 
writer to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, uh, not many people know that uh, I have a former life, a sort of second life, um, that's on hold at the moment as a composer. And uh, one of the last things I did was, was to write an opera, which now languishes on my, on my uh, bookshelf. Um, but one day will be performed. Um, and it's based on a, a uh, 14th century play by the uh, playwright this play is called Shakuntala. It is said to be to the Indian subcontinent what Hamlet is to the English-speaking world. And it's, it's an opera that has uh, a, a text, a, a subject that has been treated by um, many and some other composers, um, most notably by Schubert, who has an unfinished opera based on Shakuntala. And when I decided to treat this text, I didn't, of course, feel myself the right person to write the libretto and I wanted to have an authentic voice and instead I troped the voices of existing poets. Uh, a female po poet, Sar Sarjini uh, Naidu, uh, who was a major political leader in the, the uh, 20th century, the resistance movement, and also Tagore as well as the 7th century poet Vidyapati. Um, and I thought I might provide a little more context than we usually have for Tagore and read the final poem that I use uh, in, in, in my opera um, because it is so beautiful and because I'm looking out my window um, as twilight's falling and thinking about um, the deeper things that times like these allow and call us to think about. As the tender twilight covers in its fold of dusk-veiled marks of hurt and wastage, from the dusty day's prostration. Even so, let my great sorrows for thy loss, beloved, spread one perfect golden-tinted silence of its sadness o'er my life. Let all its jagged fractures and distortions, all unmeaning scattered scraps and wrecks and random ruins merge in the vastness of some evening, stilled with the remembrance filled with endless harmony of pain and peace as one. My friends, Rabindranath Tagore also tells us that civility is our first work of art, and no doubt in times like this is the work of art which matters most. Go, make your lives beautiful, be civil, be safe, be well.